Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Gospel of Matthew, which we are about to read from. I pray you would speak in the power of the Holy Spirit through me and to our hearts and minds. Lord, as Jeff prayed at the beginning, would the Lord Jesus Christ be glorified as we read from the Bible, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, this morning we're picking up our Matthew sermon series, which has only been running for about five years, taking a little portion and a little portion. And um, from now until Easter, we will be preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And so we'll be preaching the final three chapters of Matthew, from Matthew 26 to Matthew 28. And if you know anything about those chapters, you'll know that what we're going to read together as a church is the story of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour, the story of his arrest, the trials that he went through, and then his death upon the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And so these may well be familiar passages to you. They are familiar passages to Christians, but they are so critical to the Christian faith. What we're about to read is the history of the most significant moment in all of history. And so Matthew records this. He writes a history for us. The most significant days in all of human history. And so I'm really excited to preach to you, Matthew 26 to 28. And this morning we're going to read together Matthew 26, verses 1 to 16. So if you've got a Bible, um, open it there. And if not, it will appear on the screen behind me. Matthew 26, 1 to 16, which says this. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Well, the first thing I'd like us to do this morning is consider those first two verses of Matthew 26, verses 1 and 2, which on the surface, when you first read them, might seem like very ordinary verses to you. But I actually believe that they are some of the most extraordinary verses in the whole Bible. In verse 2, Jesus says this, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And the first thing I notice about that, that sentence that Jesus speaks is he refers to himself as the Son of Man, which appears to be a fairly ordinary title. The Son of Man is a man. 
And so as a title, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he is confirming that he is and was fully man. Jesus is 100% a man, fully man. And so in one sense, the Son of Man is a really boring title. I could call myself a Son of Man from the front here this morning. But in another way, that Son of Man title is extraordinary. Because when Jesus calls himself the, the Son of Man, he's referencing Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, which say this. Behold, with the clouds of heaven came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. So Jesus is the son of man, he's fully human, but he's the son of man who is the everlasting king who comes before the ancient of days, that is God the father, and is given an everlasting kingdom that will never end and all peoples and all nations shall worship the son of man. So when Jesus calls himself the son of man, he's saying I'm fully human, but he's also saying I'm this one who will reign forever and ever and ever. Now, of course, the reason that God the Father gives Jesus this honour is because Jesus is not just fully man. He is God the Son, the eternal Son of the Father, fully God, who took on human flesh, became fully man, in order to rescue people from sins and from death. He died on the cross and he rose again and he ascends to take his everlasting throne. So the Son of Man is an ordinary title and yet an extraordinary glorious title. And what makes this sentence particularly extraordinary to me is the very last thing that Jesus said about the Son of Man in chapter 25. So we're reading chapter 26, but what did Jesus say about the Son of Man in chapter 25? Well, let me read to you Matthew 25, verses 31 to 33. Jesus speaking, When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. In Matthew 25, Jesus speaks about himself as the Son of Man, and he, and he reveals that he is worthy of all honour and all respect and all glory, for he's going to come in glory, and all the angels will come with him, and he will sit on his glorious throne, and he will judge between all peoples and all nations. He is the king in Matthew 25, whom no one can oppose and whose judgment everyone must accept. But then in chapter 26, the same title, and Jesus says, the son of man will be delivered into the hands of sinful men to be crucified. You see, in Matthew 25, Jesus is worthy of all worship and glory. In Matthew 26, Jesus is worthy of our love. This is the one who will reign forever in glory. And yet he had the humility and love to be delivered over to men who would crucify him. Now that word delivered in, in verse 2 can also be translated as betrayed 
or handed over. And actually, that word is used 10 times in Matthew 26. This is what this chapter is all about. The Son of Man, the glorious ruler forever, being betrayed. Being treated like a possession. Sold like a slave for 30 pieces of silver. And every single one of us should be asking, why? Why is it that the eternal king allowed himself to be betrayed and delivered and sold for 30 pieces of silver like a slave? Well, the answer, of course, is because of you and because of me. Because he loved us and he came to rescue us, to pay the ransom that would set you free from the slavery of sin. If you're not a Christian, by the way, you know that you are trapped and captured under sin slavery. Try as you might to be a bit good person, you always fall short. You need the salvation of Jesus to set you free. Belief in him who was delivered, who was betrayed to be crucified for you. And on the cross, Jesus pays that ransom. He is sold into slavery in a sense, in order that we might be rescued from the slavery of sin into the freedom of eternal life. So I love Matthew 26 verse 2. I think it's a magnificent verse. The Son of Man who is glorious in chapter 25, humble enough and loving enough to die on the cross for you. And that's why we love him, isn't it? But I also love verse 2 for another reason. I promise I'm not going to spend the whole, whole time preaching about verse 2, but I love verse 2. Jesus says, after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be crucified. In other words, what Jesus does is he connects his death with the Passover. It, the Passover is coming and that's why I need to be handed over and crucified. I wonder whether you know the story of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. The Israelites needs saving from slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh has enslaved the Israelites and will not let them go. And plague upon plague upon plague has come upon Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. But Pharaoh is still stubborn and says, I will not let this people go. And Moses pleads with him. But the Israelites are in slavery. And so God says to Moses, a final plague is coming upon the nation of Egypt. And when this final plague comes, then finally Pharaoh will let my people go. And this is the plague that God sends upon the nation of Israel. The firstborn sons of all the Egyptians will die. And so God says to the Israelites, you need to be prepared for this night when the angel will come and kill the firstborn sons. He says, take a lamb and sacrifice the lamb. And take the blood of the lamb and paint the blood on the doorposts of your houses. And when the angel of the Lord comes, he will see the blood on the doorposts and he will pass over that house. He will not enter into that house and kill the firstborn son, but he will pass over and he will only enter into the Egyptian houses. And in this way, Israel is saved from death. Because death does not come to the firstborn son of the Israelites. And Israel is saved from slavery. Because the Pharaoh finally says, we cannot have this people here any longer. We must let them go. And in Matthew 26 verse 2, Christ connects his death 
with that Passover moment in history. Do you know what Jesus is saying in Matthew 26, verse 2? I'm the true Passover lamb. My blood will be shed so that you will be passed over, so that you will be saved from death, so that you will be saved into freedom from slavery. And so that's why, what a verse Matthew 26 verse 2 is. What a saviour we have in Jesus Christ, the glorious but humble son of man, the Passover lamb who was slain for all who believe in him. And if you believe in Christ this morning, then his blood will become the shield on your doorpost. Death will not come to you. You will have everlasting life. And slavery is not what you will live in, but you will live in the freedom of the Holy Spirit because of Jesus' blood shed for you. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the good news according to Matthew 26, verse 2. We worship a God, Jesus Christ, who died for us on the cross that we might be saved. And actually, there are always two responses to Jesus. There are always two responses to Jesus. You either love that good news and you love Jesus or you reject that good news. And in doing so, you hate Jesus. He died for you and you're saying, I don't want a part of that. That's hatred. There are always two responses to what Jesus has done. And you can see those two responses in verses 6 to 16. One woman who loves Jesus and pours ointment on his head in worship and one man who hates this gospel. You're going to, I hate this. You're going to die and sells him into slavery. And so the question I really want to ask you this morning is how precious is Jesus to you? How precious is Jesus to you? To you, How precious is his death upon the cross? How precious is it to you that the Son of Man was handed over, delivered over to be crucified? And as I say, two responses to that question in this passage. Let's think about Judas first. In Judas's story, we have a warning against greedy rejection of Christ. In verse 8... The disciples are indignant with the woman for wasting money, aren't they? She pours this expensive ointment over Jesus' head and the disciples say, what are you doing? We could have sold that, made loads of money and given it to the poor. Well, you can read this same story told in, in John's Gospel, in John chapter 12. And when you read John chapter 12, you'll see that Judas was the one leading those accusations. Judas was the one who first went, oh, we could have, we could have used this money and given it to the poor. But John tells us that the reason that Judas was zealous for that to happen is because Judas was a thief and he was stealing money from the disciples' pot. And so he thought, wow, we could have made a lot of money here and I could have, back, I could have put a lot of that in my back pocket. So even in the build-up to how Judas responds, we can see that Judas is a greedy, greedy man. Then in verses 14 to 16, Judas' greed gives birth to the sin of betraying Jesus Christ. He asked a question. Judas asked a question in verse 15. What will you give me, he says to the Jewish leaders. Isn't that an interesting contrast? Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, saying, I'm going to be delivered over to be crucified. In other words, he's laying down his life. He's giving everything in love. And meanwhile, Judas is saying, what will you give me? What can you give to me? Judas, who claims to be a follower of Jesus, 
is asking this question, which is the complete opposite of Jesus's attitude. The sin of greed is driving what Judas is doing. And although none of us will sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, it is worth examining ourselves for that sin of greed. Is what will you give me the defining question of our lives? Is what will you give me the defining question of how we do Christianity? Or is it how can I lay down my life to serve others? Let me put it this way, are you following Jesus or are you following Judas? Even in, this, in, the, even in the church, this attitude, I think, has been horribly twisted. We can choose a church based on what will I receive? That's the most important thing. We can decide to go to a certain event based on what will I receive? What will you give me? That's not how Jesus lived. That's not how Jesus... Jesus said, what can I give? How can I lay myself down in order to serve others? In some portions of the church, it's clear that what will you give me, God, is the most important question. In the false teachings of the prosperity gospel, this has become particularly twisted. Let me just name one. Consider Joel Austin, who leads the biggest church in the USA. And let me read to you the titles of the books he's written in the last three years. One called Speak the Blessing. Send your words in the direction you want your life to go. One called 15 ways to live longer and healthier. One called your greater is coming. Discover the path to your bigger, better and brighter future. Or another called rule your day. Six keys to maximising your success and accelerating your dreams. This is a man who's asking, what will you give me? How can I be successful? How can I be raised up in my game? Beware of ministries that speak more about health and wealth and how God can make your life better than they speak about the cross of Christ and the Saviour who laid down his life. And we claim to be his disciples and follow in that example. It's easy to point the finger, though, at Joel Austin. Let's examine ourselves and ask, have I valued wealth over Jesus Christ? Perhaps I've devoted hours and hours and hours to working overtime and earning as much money as I possibly can, but I've neglected to pray. Perhaps not giving anything to the church or to the poor even a small amount, even though God commands us to give. Or perhaps rejoicing and celebrating over wealth and possessions more than we celebrate our relationship with Christ. I do not preach this for the sake of Christchurch Fairing's bank balance. I'm preaching this for the sake of our hearts. Do we value Jesus as the most precious thing in our life? And therefore, greed for wealth and possessions become meaningless, unimportant, because I have Jesus and I always have him for eternity. And he will reign forever and will reward his followers on the final day. And therefore, I don't have greed for possessions in this life. 
Is Jesus as precious to me? Is Jesus as precious to you as he ought to be? Do I have the extravagant, costly love of the woman who pours ointment over Jesus' head, or do I have the greed of Judas? Well, let's think about this woman in verses 16 to 13, whom Jesus honours. I love what Jesus says about this lady. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, her story will also be told. The disciples are like, what has she done? She's done a terrible thing. And Jesus is going, no, everywhere the gospel is proclaimed, they're going to talk about this lady and her love for me. In John's gospel, she's identified as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And in Mark's gospel, we're told that the perfume or the ointment that she used is called nard. And it's worth 300 denarii. And 300 denarii is the equivalent to 300 days work. A denarii would be one day's worth of wages. In fact, if you were a Roman legionary, your yearly wage would only be 225 denarii. So think about what this woman has spent on this ointment and then she's pouring it on Jesus' head. That's, that's why the disciples are like, what are you doing? This is a crazy act of worship. This is a crazy amount of money that you've spent on just honouring Jesus. What are you doing, you crazy lady? Can you imagine doing something right now in worship to Jesus that meant you wiped out all the money that you'd earned this year and you just said, no, all of this is going towards honouring Jesus in one moment of adoration and worship. That is what's happening in Matthew 26. Now, the reason nard was so expensive is because it's from the Himalayas. So this has been kind of come a really long way. And you can imagine how hard it would have been to get this precious, precious perfume. That gives you a sense of just how extravagant this act of adoration to Christ was. Nard is mentioned twice in the Song of Solomon as an expression of love. And it's also associated with kingliness. So by this, by this act, Mary is saying to Jesus, I love you, my king. I love you, my king. And the anointing of his head was what would, um, a king would be anointed on his head when he became a king. And a priest is also anointed on his head. So there's something about this glorious act. She's saying, oh, I just love you, my king. I've chosen the most expensive ointment I can find and I want to pour it on your head as honour to you because I love you, my king. But Jesus interprets it slightly differently because in verse 12, he says, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Rather like bodies are anointed and embalmed after death. Mary seems to be anticipating Jesus's death and anointing him for embalmment in this moment. So how do we understand what's going on here? Here is an act of unrestrained love, extravagant honour, effusive, I can't say that word, heartfelt worship to God given to her king whom she loves with a particular focus on the fact that her king is going to die for her on the cross and be buried. Just, just for a moment, just, just pause and imagine what's going on in Mary's heart and mind when she does this amazing act. 
I love you, Jesus. You're so amazing. You're my king. I want to honour you. I want to anoint you. I want I want this moment to just be so special because I love you so much. And yet you're going to die and my heart's filled with sorrow for that. And yet I want to prepare you for that moment when you will be in the grave. I just My worship for you is just overflowing. I'm going to do something that's crazy and expensive and costly, but I just love you, Jesus, so much that I want to do it. Well, church, Christ is not here with us physically. So we cannot go to the Himalayas and buy this expensive ointment and perfume and pour it physically onto Jesus' head this morning. But we can offer Jesus heartfelt, extravagant, unrestrained worship, honouring him without limit, not holding back and saying, oh, I want to do this because I love Jesus so much, but people are watching, so I'm just not going to. No, we're unrestrained in going, God, Jesus is so awesome. I love him so much. He's my king. I want to honour him and worship him in any way I possibly can. Our hearts ought to be bursting at the truth that this glorious son of man died for us on the cross. The cross, of course, is the pinnacle of Christ's glory. You might think the pinnacle of Christ's glory is when he walked on water or when he fed 5,000 people. But actually, it's the the cross. It's the place where he says, I want to show you how glorious I am. I want to show you how much I love you. I'm laying down my life for you in order that you might be saved. And that's why churches have kind of honoured the symbol of the cross, because we, we just see Christ in his pinnacle of glory saying, this is love. This is my glory. This is how much I love you. And our response to that should be that our love for him swells more and more and more. We're going to go back into a time of sung worship in just a moment. When we do, may your love and honour just overflow in song or in spiritual gifts or in dance or using your bodies anyway just say lord jesus i love you so much and express that in your sung worship but before we do that i want to make two practical observations firstly in verse 11 jesus says you will always have the poor with you but you will not always have me the implication of that is twofold Firstly, Jesus is no longer physically with us, so Christians ought to give to the poor. That's what Jesus is saying. Like, when the poor are with you, you give to the poor. And so Jesus isn't physically with us, and the poor are around us and hopefully in our midst, and so we ought to be giving to the poor, because that's the implication of Jesus' words. But having said that, Jesus is actually saying that honour and worship to him is of greater importance than even giving to the poor. Giving to the poor is something that is important and something that we ought to do as Christians. But honouring Christ is more important than giving to the poor. So the Christian loves and worships and honours Christ and as part of that gives generously to the poor. But even the most generous non-Christian, though they give generously to the poor misses the most important good thing that they can do, which is to love Christ. Do you see that? Those two things come in an order. If you don't love Christ and you give generously to the poor, well, well done for giving generously, but you're never going to earn your salvation without love for Christ. You're never going to give enough because everything you're given is from God anyway. So you're never going to pay off your debt. You're never going to earn your way into salvation. But as Christians, we do both, but we prioritise them correctly. We love Christ with everything. We worship and honour him. 
And then out of that love, we do give to the poor. The second observation I want to make is that when I read this story of this woman pouring over this ointment over Jesus' head, I'm reminded of Old Testament drink-offering sacrifices. Particularly because Jesus has mentioned the Passover, he's kind of drawing our attention to the Old Testament. Some sacrifices in the Old Testament were not just a lamb or a goat or a bull being slaughtered on an altar, but they came with a drink offering. They were combined with a drink offering, which meant someone took some wine and poured it over the lamb that was to be slain. And that was, just, that was just an expression of heartfelt worship. No one got down on the floor and drank the wine that was poured out. It was a waste, in a sense, pouring out the wine over this lamb. It was a complete waste. But it was, there was something in that act which is taken up in the New Testament. This story feels a little bit like that, doesn't it? Jesus is on his way to being crucified and he has expensive liquid poured on him in an almost wasteful but worshipful way. And Paul, the apostle... When he talks about drink offerings, he talks about them in this way. So in Philippians 2 verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So he's saying, you Philippians have faith and I've been serving you and giving everything I've got. So it's like I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon your faith. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 5 to 6, Paul writes to Timothy, Fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. You see, in both those verses, Paul talks about his own life as a drink offering. And he says, I am being poured out, giving everything for the purpose of the gospel, giving everything to honour Christ, giving everything to serve other Christians in my life. I've, I've fulfilled my ministry in a sense. So I'm saying to you, Timothy, you ought to fulfil your ministry. You ought to pour out yourself as a drink offering. Do you see this act of this woman pouring this ointment upon Jesus's head? If that's like a drink offering then how do we pour ointment on the head of Jesus now? It's surely by having Paul's attitude and saying, I'm going to be poured out as a drink offering in my worship and service to Christ. I'm going to give all that I am. Think of your life as a glass of wine or a jar of perfume and just being poured out and poured out and poured out and poured out. And that feels like a daunting task, doesn't it? That feels hard. But that's the equivalent of what this woman did. I love Jesus so much. He's my king. He's the son of man. He's glorious. He died for me on the cross. I'm going to pour out this expensive ointment. Or Paul saying, I'm just going to be poured out as a drink offering in all my life. Yeah, we worship when we gather on a Sunday. And I want us to express our worship in a heartfelt way. But what's true Worship, well, Romans 12 says it's being a living sacrifice. Offering ourselves to God to serve him, to discern what God's will is in our lives. What is God's good and perfect will? But it's that living sacrifice. It's that drink offering phrase that I really want us to take to heart. This woman was honoured by Christ. 
And so I want to follow in her example by the way I worship. And the best way I know how is to give everything I can, like a drink offering is poured out, in order to worship God, to love him and to honour him, and also to serve and love others. And so that's my prayer for myself when I read this story of this woman pouring ointment on Jesus' head. Can I, in a costly, extravagant, heartfelt way, love Jesus like that, not just in this room, but every day of my life? So this story, that's what this story calls us to. We have a picture of the Son of Man, the glorious one, so humble that he was delivered over to be crucified, sold like a slave by Judas, and yet we have this picture of real, loving, costly worship.